uh, if you get on the top of this mountain and look east, you're looking at the Delaware River Valley and the Appalachian Trail across the way on the New Jersey side. It's really beautiful. And looking across uh, west, you're looking at the Pocono Plateau. And, and back in that day, there was nothing there. It was all just nothing but Penn's Woods, as far as you could see. We had an old international scout and a trailer full of rental equipment. You know, it was free hot chocolate and free coffee. And I think it was $2 to go skiing and rentals were free. And uh, that's how we started. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got another Pennsylvania episode for you today. Before we get to that, a reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. If you're just catching the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever, you're missing a whole lot of additional content. You can also follow the Storm on Instagram or on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Now, let's talk about my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional Mountain Gazette, you are going to be shocked when you see the new format. It is a monster, 16 and a half inches by 10 and three quarters inches. What has not changed is the incredible wide ranging writing and show stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, shipping any day now, features a huge gallery titled The Last Days of Skiing in Afghanistan. Mountain Gazette connected with a photographer who captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date. But the range of the new Mountain Gazette is huge. Another gallery is Daniel Arnold, New York's most renowned street photographer, who will roll out a gallery that conveys his impression of autumn in New York City. Do not miss this. You need to subscribe today to reserve your copy at mountaingazette.com. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That's a new code, all right? GOHIRE-10. That will ensure you get that story and everything else in issue 196. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 61, Nick Fredericks, President, CEO, and part owner of Shawnee Mountain, Pennsylvania. Where did you learn to ski? Chances are it was someplace a whole lot like Shawnee, Pennsylvania. We're going back to the edge of the Poconos today and to what might be one of the best learning ski areas in the entire country. As you will hear, more than half of Shawnee skiers rent gear and the mountain keeps 4,000 sets of rental skis and snowboards on hand. That is an operation that is committed to making you or anyone into a skier. Those are phenomenal numbers, and they are a testament to what Shawnee is and to what Fredericks and his team have built over the past 46 years. I honestly don't know if there are better top-to-bottom runs in the Northeast than what you find at Shawnee. These are not cat tracks or some 50-foot-long hillock. 
but legitimate summit to base terrain that gives beginners that sensation of really conquering a substantial run. This is also an interesting conversation for a few other reasons. Fredericks has been at Shawnee since the joint opened in 1975. You don't get that much more in America. Someone who has been with a mountain through its entire history. But he'll tell us that story and a whole lot more, including how Shawnee flipped from being an upside down ski area and moved its base to the bottom of the hill. Let's hear it. My guest today is the president and CEO of Shawnee Mountain, Pennsylvania. Shawnee features 23 trails on a 700-foot vertical drop served by six chairlifts. He has worked at the resort since it opened in 1975 and has been an owner of the ski area since 1996. Nick Fredericks is my guest. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So, Nick, I want to go all the way back to the beginning here. I think it's really rare these days that you find anyone who has been associated with a ski area for its entire existence, right? Because most ski areas in the United States date back to 1960s or prior. And you really didn't see a lot built after that time, except in Pennsylvania, for whatever reason, and and, and maybe you do know the reason. I don't know if it's regulatory. I don't know if they push this, but a lot of ski areas opened in the 70s and 80s. And one of those was Shawnee opening in 1975. So take us back to 1975 here, Nick. What was Shawnee like when it opened? Well, Shawnee was designed getting back to an upside down, meaning, you know, the summit lodge Lodge was on the summit and you skied down the mountain from the summit Uh, for looks. uh, If you get on the top of this mountain and look east, you're looking at the Delaware River Valley and the Appalachian Trail across the way on the New Jersey side. It's really beautiful. And looking across uh, west and northwest you're looking at the Pocono Plateau. And and back in that day, back in the set, there was nothing there. It was all just nothing but Penn's Woods, as far as you could see. Really, really beautifully. You would look at Camelback, which obviously was in existence then. And uh, so Carl Hope, who was the original owner and developer, was one of the first developers in the Poconos to get involved in timesharing. So we thought having this beautiful ski area uh, with a beautiful rustic lodge on the summit, uh, it was all post and beam, it still is, it's a beautiful building, uh, would be a great uh, incentive for sales. And it was. What really threw him off is it was also a successful area really from the first day. Uh, We opened We started construction up there in October. Uh, We had the trails, most of the snow making the lifts in. But that October of 74, uh, we started building the lodge. And our intent was to have it open by Christmas. And we missed our mark. We didn't open the lodge to the 28th of December. But we did rent skis and... uh, we had an old international scout and a trailer full of rental equipment and a hot plate that we were giving away. You know, it was free hot chocolate and free coffee. And I think it was $2 to go skiing. Oh, wow. And <laughs> rentals were free. And uh, that's how we started. And we got into the lodge on the 28th of, of that year in December. 
and had a what we called we thought was a very successful winter and uh and it was you know it was a a very unique experience and uh to open that in that context it was uh I would call it a very rough opening. (laughs) (laughs) What was your first job there, Nick? Everything. Uh, (laughs) I was, I started in the business up in Beacon, New York for a ski area that Camelback built. There was a small ski area there and that's where I grew up. My family was in the construction business and I was, uh, kind of like taking by, I liked all sports, but the ski was something that I, I was never exposed to. And then, and the man who ran that area, his name was Jim Trepp and he was from Iron Mountain, Michigan. And to me, he was like everything. I mean, he was a ski jumper, a skier. He was Scandinavian. He was friends with Stein Erickson, you know, and I'm absorbing all this and that did it for me. And I never looked back. I was I was 13 years old, and my family had a construction business, and they were building the lodges and all sorts of stuff at Duchess. And I I worked the summers there whenever I could, so I could learn, you know, so I could ski. So uh, I did everything. So when we I rented skis, I groomed, I made snow, I worked on our two lifts that we had. Uh, there was nothing any of us didn't do because we were a very small group. I mean, there was only a handful of us with any kind of experience. So it was fun. And uh, that, you know, still holds true a lot of it today. That's my background. And I still, I don't sit in my office too much if I don't have to. And I'm still very involved in all the, everything. And I think, that when you say, you know, it's unusual that, you know, you've been here at, for that amount of time. If you look at our employee base, there's so many that are 30 plus years. It's, really? uh, yeah, it's a pretty incredible a bunch that are within a year of me and that are still here. That's, and, that's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's not one or two. Uh-huh. It's, you know, most of our full-time staff and, uh, it's just, uh, it is truly when you talk about families running a resort and everybody asks you, you know, it truly is a family. I mean, that's kind of a cliche that we, it's a fit. In this case, it truly is there. You know, there's not a lot I don't know about everyone or they don't know about me. We have an open door policy to everyone. So I try to always stay under the radar personally and just look at the whole, you know, there's so many stories here. It's, it's just pretty darn incredible and enjoyable. So you started out as, as the everything guy, yeah. lifts, grooming, and, yeah. and you're still the everything guy, but at some point along the way, you got the title in the, in the part of ownership. So, so take us through this progression of day one back in the mid seventies to how you became an owner of Shawnee so many years later. We were on the summit lot, you know, at the summit for three years. During that three-year period, we went through a couple different mountain managers, and by the fourth year, I assumed that role full time. Uh, we also moved to the bottom, built a lodge at the bottom during there. Jim was here; he was the GM here at that time, and uh, 
So we built the lodge at the bottom strictly because we outgrew the top really by the second year. Uh, there wasn't enough parking. Uh, the road, I don't know. I know you saw it on uh, Google Maps or something, but the road was was definitely a difficult road getting to the top. I don't know if you're it's, familiar. It's with still a windy road getting back there to Shawnee. Yeah, there's a great story about that road. Uh, there's a a writer for and I poster to Daily News, Jerry Kenny. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that name, yep. but he's been in this writing in the ski business forever. Mm-hmm. And he had a in a Sunday edition. He did a thing on skiing at Shawnee and the Poconos in general. And he said, all his quote was, "Although the skiing at Shawnee is only intermediate, the road is expert." <laughs> that, I'll that second was, that. That was that was great, and none of us have forgotten that. And uh, that same third year on top, we spent more money trying to keep more money and time trying to keep the top road open uh, than we did making snow. So again, then so we moved to the bottom. Uh, regulations. I know you touched on that a little bit. Uh, we weren't really regulated on what we can do at that point in time. There were some regulations, but we had the our zoning and all that was taken care of when the ski area was built. It was basically filing for a permit, a water permit, you know, three simple permits, and we were on our way. And uh, we built the base lodge and a new road coming, a new access road, and uh, away we went. So we went from three main trails from the summit. And we added three trails that year and then another three after that, uh, two or three lifts that year, and then three on the beginner slope that year. So it was a busy five years when we moved to the bottom. And I was still the mountain manager, and I was in charge of all the construction. And uh, we and the ski area had been sold from uh, Carl Hope. He was in... Uh, bad health he sold was purchased by Charlie Kirkwood who owned Shawnee Inn at the time uh, they were still very involved in time sharing and the ski area was still you know very successful very busy uh, and we just kept going we kept growing and uh, we had the ability to constantly upgrade uh, constantly put capital monies into the ski area via lifts via we you know we were in a we had a summer business for a while uh, constant upgrades to this day in snowmaking so that lasted until early 90s and the real estate market sort of fell apart and banking sort of fell apart they were unable to finance their timeshare paper if you're familiar with time sharing they 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 sell that paper and it became almost impossible Hmm. Uh, at that point i think the loan was valued about 22 million to a consortium of banks so the i'll call it the jewel but the cash cow in the business were the ski areas both ski areas were successful both uh, Shawnee Mountain here in Pennsylvania and Shawnee Peak in uh, Bridgeton, Maine. Uh, all had positive, both had positive cash flows. 
So the banks realized that and they negotiated uh, deed and lieu. So the banks took the ski areas and forgave $22 million in debt, which allowed the development to you know, try to get back on its feet. And the ski areas uh, were owned by the banks. They tried to, we tried to buy it at that point and they had uh, no intention. Uh, we got a lesson or I got a lesson in banking that, you know, when you have an Oreo property, they like to see how it operates for X amount. And I think they have a period of four years before regulators start pushing them to sell. So I was the main liaison between PNC Bank in Pittsburgh and Shawnee Mountain. We formed a management group uh, to run the ski areas for them. And they sold Shawnee Peak, I think, in the second year of this. So that would have been 94. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So uh, we kept going here and we were, uh, we would had annual, semi-annual meetings with the consortium of banks, which was a great education. And uh, it was, we were very successful. They, they had trouble dealing with the fact that we had such a cash flow. Most Oreo properties do not have that cash flow. The banks were like elated, which gave me a lot of freedom uh, that they were, you know, they were looking at three to $4 million a year in positive cash flow from Pennsylvania. So they were just ecstatic. It made their job easier. Uh, when they were talking with their partners, because there were British banks, Scotland, Bank of Scotland, there were several banks. And uh, it made their job much easier and made my job easier because if I needed, you know, a million dollars worth of new equipment spread out through whatever, it was never an issue. And I had a, I worked with a guy at a PNC who was, uh, he was an operations type guy. So it made that pretty easy for me. And we had some, uh, we communicated well. And then in uh, 96, the beginning of 96, they are starting to get pressure, I assume by the regulators that, okay, you've had this property. It's time you, it's time to put it up for sale. So they hired a company out of Manhattan called the Granite Partners. And they called me and told me they hired uh, this group and that they are professional professional seller of assets. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I can't remember Jerry's last name, but they did a nice job. They, you know, filled out a beautiful booklet and sent it out all over the, all over the place. So I spent the better part of that summer and fall dealing with prospective buyers. And it was, I mean, it was, you know, you had Ski LTD, which at that time was uh, Press Smith and the Killington Group. You had George Gillette and his group out of, uh, out of the fiberboard areas, uh, still squalamine up in Washington State and Loon, and they were making a big push in Pennsylvania, which they did. Uh, also in there was Herb Naylor, who owned uh, Liberty and Roundtop. Uh, Camelback was also in there. 
so I was getting played pretty hard with all of those ski areas, and I was not necessarily uncomfortable with it, but I was more comfortable with my partners in the management company. So we we formalized the corporation and got into a bidding war. Most of the bidding war went away when you know I had it disclosed to them that I would not be, you know, we are bidding. I am bidding against you guys. And, uh, that that didn't go well with some, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we wound up us and Camelback were the final two and. We just had a bidding war on the phone. Sam Newman was the president of Camelback, who was a a, a good friend of mine and a, a true gentleman, a smart man. And uh, he finally said, uh, "That's up. That's it for us, Nick." Uh, he, he says, "I wish you all the luck in the world," but he had a caveat to it. He said, "I know I made I made you spend a million more than you wanted, so." <laughs> Uh, we're going to keep you pinned down for at least a year, but uh, it really, it didn't happen, but it was good. It was all good. And I think it was maybe not the best financial decision at the time for me, but uh, it really worked out well. And I took it into our, our boardroom here at the ski area. And I took all the full timers that had been with us from day one through some hard times and, and good times and said, here's my options. And I said, I, I want you guys to sit here. I'll give you my reasons why I'm thinking of going in this direction. And I want your, your opinions. And uh, it was a unanimous vote and it wasn't really a stacked vote. There were some pretty good questions, but it was a unanimous vote that we wanted to stay as close to operating the way we always have. And uh, it was a good moment for me. And uh, ever since then, uh, it's just been really good through you know, some trying times, of course. But we've been successful, you know, since, since that year, since 1996. We've always had a good positive cash flow, and it continues today. And, you know, we've done a lot of things for our employees you know we have a strong 401 you know we're looking to their future teaching them you know about 401ks and here's what you should do and here's how you should do it and that kind of stuff was really not heard of a whole lot in the ski business when i got into it you know i mean you made your money and you went fishing in the spring there wasn't a whole lot of future to it there's there's so much good stuff in there, Nick. That evolution over the course of of several decades, and so much happened, and in a way reflects a lot of what's been happening in the larger ski world. I do want to pause and go back on this on this uh, reorientation of the parking lot from the top to oh, the okay. bottom. Yeah, just the the massiveness of that undertaking is is hard to imagine. Could you just talk about that project and what it took? To get that done because for, for folks who have not been to shawnee it's it's a very unique entry experience you, you come in and there's these massive parking lots and and then you you walk up toward the resort and there's a, a pond 
or whatever. I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong there. And there's a, a walkway and it sort of feels like an arrival, right? It's, it's, it's sort of a dramatic experience and it's very cool, but you know, I, I was that raw forest. Like talk about that whole process of, of reorienting the resort from a, an upside down resort to a traditional bottom up ski resort. Right. You know, with the, the pond at that time is nothing like it is today. Uh, it had a beaver dam. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, that was our water source. Uh, and we would we would help beaver out now and then to make it better. But Jim mm-hmm. Trepp and I walked the whole base area several times with orange flagging and white flagging and basically laid out the parking lots, laid them out in steps so we didn't have – we wanted that visual look. I mean, uh, we didn't want one big 10-acre parking lot so it looked like a Walmart. If you right. if you remember when you're here, all the parking lots are uh, at different levels. They're stone cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a pain in the neck, but I think it's aesthetically <laughs> pleasing yes. to have that breakup of the lots. Uh, so we mapped that that all out, located the lodge, uh, and it was all. This was all an old farm at one time. So there were several rock walls that we try to maintain. And, you know, rock walls and ski areas uh, are not the best thing in the world. Right. So the best we could do was make a huge fireplace out of those rock walls in the Pigs Lodge. Oh, that's Uh, interesting. Yeah. And it was just, you know, I don't want to say a simple building permit, but that's, you know, pretty much we did a layout. Uh, I met with the zoning hearing board and I, uh, three supervisors at the time and went over the, you know, on foot and in vehicles to show them exactly what I wanted to do. They were positive with it. Um, they thought it would be a good, a good fit in the township. They're happy that we were off of the summit road mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> uh, it was, and uh, you know, we just put it to work. We, we had a very good friend at the skier called Ben Pekarski. He was a, a contractor and he was a wild west contractor, a better way to describe him. Okay. He was a uh, young guy. He was just a little bit older than I was a Vietnam vet, uh, just a, just a strong freewheeling shoot from the hip guy and loved heavy equipment and would do anything he had his blasting license. He had everything. And okay. we just went to work that first spring. You know, we closed and we had to build everything from scratch down there. We had no utilities. We had nothing. And uh, it was really, really just a lot of fun. A lot of hard work, but a lot of fun. And uh, we had it ready up and ready to go 100%. And that walkway is a bridge. It's been replaced twice since. The first bridge, we sawed oak and maple off of the mountain that we cleared for the new trails and drove pilings all the way across. Uh, So that was kind of interesting. And the walkway was oak and fir off of the mountain. And it was really, we liked the idea because ski areas always had, are notorious for, you know, theft or, but this was an unusual area because it takes, it takes some guts for somebody to do something wrong 
because their only way out is across that bridge. That's right. And uh, we control that very well. Uh, we did have a couple people do something they shouldn't have done, and they ran and tried to run across the ice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, had a little problem, and we found <laughs> them uh, laying under some cars in the parking lot, shivering. <laughs> so we brought, we brought them in, gave them some hot chocolate, and warmed them up with a couple of blankets, then called their parents. <laughs> Funny story, one of the three, his father, and I won't mention any names, was a high-ranking uh, officer in the Pentagon. I believe he was a colonel, Fulberg colonel. And he had his own plane, and he said, I'll be right there, and literally flew up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> How deep is that pond? At, at that time, it wasn't. It was only two or three feet. But okay, good. when we built a new dam and the bridge, now it's 13 feet. Ooh, it, yeah. nice. Yeah. And, you know, with <laughs> filmmaking and water levels changing, the ice yeah. isn't very solid all the time. Yeah. What did you do with all the with the access road to the summit and the parking lots? Did you just abandon all those? No, no, no. The summit lodge we ran as a dorm okay. dormitory. So two of the lots are still there. The summit road is still there, hmm. and it's uh, still operational. Uh, it's not used much, uh, you know, for the before COVID. It was booked about every weekend with church groups, scouts, uh, mostly, you know, teenagers and some type of um, a group, even high schools. And we, we could sleep uh, 60 people in there and we would serve them breakfast. Well, you know, what a better place. You step yeah. out of the front of the lodge, you're on the snow. Right. So, <laughs> Is that road open to the public? Not now. Now that we are not doing that anymore, we it's not they, there's a gate on there and it's not open because what would invariably happen is people that would park up there now with night skiing, uh, they would ski down and not get on the lift when they were supposed to. Hmm. So the lift would shut down and they're stuck at the bottom <laughs> and it became quite a headache. That's a long uh, hike up. It's a long hike up and, you know, no banking started. Grooming has started. So it's not the best and not the best thing in the world. So now we, unless there's a, an affair happening at the summit, we do lock it. So I want, I want to talk a little bit here about the relationship between Shawnee and Shawnee Peak in Maine. I, I didn't realize until I started researching for this interview that there was a relationship and that the owners of Shawnee, Pennsylvania had purchased what was then Pleasant Mountain up in Maine. And I don't know how involved you were with that whole thing, but but what can you tell us about that? And, and, and have you maintained any sort of relationship with Shawnee over the years since you've separated into different companies? Yes, we had been looking uh, a directive from uh, Charlie Kirkwood is he would like to, before it was as popular as it is today, is look at owning other ski areas. And he would you know, pat you on the back and say, you're doing such a great job here. Let's try to do it some other places. Right. <laughs> so I think I looked at probably 20 to 30 ski areas, uh, mostly in the Northeast. And... Uh, Finally, we got to Shawnee Peak, 
and Peter Dromeshauser was the owner, one of the owners. Uh, the other fellow was one of the founders of uh, Wang Computers. So out of, out of the Boston area. So we, uh, I really liked the mountain. The general manager at the time was a fellow named Ed Rock. And it was just like, okay, it really fits. He's a, he's just a guy that you got, you have to like a personality that was hard to beat. Uh, Eric Bloomberg was the mountain manager. And I'm looking at this guy and he was a tough guy. And he said, you know, we don't want somebody from Pennsylvania. Outspoken as most mountain managers are, very individualistic type people. I was the same way, probably still am. But, you know, they were the show me crowd. You know, you're going to do this, but show me how you're going to do it. You're going to do this, but show me. They had some real problems. Uh, they had lift issues. Uh, they weren't real interested in the beginners. And they didn't want to get into group business. But we swayed them and, you know, I worked there for months. You know, we built, the, you know, that year we closed in August and put in 12,000 feet of snow pipe, wow. put in a new lift, uh, tons of work to the base lodge. And we're very, you know, extremely happy. I loved it. I, uh, I would leave here at three in the afternoon, drive six hours, six and a half hours and get there and, uh, go to work up there for three days and come back. And it, it was, uh, it was great for me. And the ski area was great. The top of that, I don't know if you've ever been to that mountain, I haven't but seen on it. top you look down into Moose Pond, you know, you're, you're looking at a lake and it's absolutely gorgeous. So you take a 1200 vertical foot mountain that looks down on a lake mm -hmm. appears to be a 3000 vertical foot mountain. Wow. Yeah, it's just the appearance. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And off the backside, you're looking at the presidential range. Uh, it's, it's just gorgeous. Uh, just gorgeous. And it, again, the personnel were the selling point, along with the price. We negotiated a price everyone was happy with. Uh, and off to work we went. So we took the ski area from 25,000 skiers the year before we bought it. Mm -hmm. to 90,000 right away. Wow. And it became, you know, again, a, a positive cash flow. Um, and they understood the importance of, of group business. And we put somebody on the road as we had Shawnee uh, going called to different, every, every town in Maine has an academy. Uh, and we went to all of them and gave them our pro, you know, our proposal. And then everything east of us, right on Route 302, takes you right into Portland and Wyndham, all these uh, nice towns. And we went to all the grade schools and high schools and developed a really good program, which they still have today. Uh, Ed Rock has since retired. Uh, the banks, you know, when they, I try to buy the ski area myself, my mm -hmm. wife and I personally, and I was... I don't want to say blackballed, but they weren't happy with me leaving here to go there. Okay. I'm not sure why, but it didn't happen. So they sold it to Chet Homer. Uh, Chet, I don't know if you know the name, but he is Tom's of Maine. So if you need toothbrush or a toothpaste or deodorant, 
Tom Zemain yeah. is the natural way to go. And he was a good guy. I met him a few times and he kept everybody on that wanted to stay on. And that's scariest spot. Edward, as I said, has retired. But I stay in touch and we, you know, trade, you know, phone calls regarding the winter and what we're doing new, what we're Eric has since left. Uh, Eric uh, takes care of four or five camps now up in Maine. And it's a life that he enjoys a whole lot and gives him winners to do what he likes the best. He still hunts and traps and makes a living at it. So there's a lot of other good people up there that uh, it was a good experience for us. A good experience because everyone that works here and this main, our main crew had a chance to go up there and see it one, but also trade input back and forth, which was a good thing. Everyone learned a lot on both, both ends of the road. So it sounds like it's a place that's, that's been important to you for a long time. Do you have any thoughts on Boyne Resorts buying Shawnee Peak? Uh, no, I think uh, Chet had, Chet was hoping to get his son more in the fold at Shawnee Peak, I believe. And it didn't work out exactly the way he wanted. And I had, I saw Chet maybe two years ago at a ski show and uh, he wanted to talk to me and just, we never put it together uh, at that time. So I think that was the conversation that he was looking for an exit. All right. Let's talk about Shawnee a little bit here, starting with the terrain. Um, as you mentioned, the, you took us through the evolution of Shawnee from the mid-70s to what it is today. Uh, that footprint has been more or less set for the past several decades. And when you look on Google Maps, there's a lot of forest around the ski area. I don't know if it's skiable. I don't know who owns it. Uh, is there a possibility that you would ever look to expand the current trail network into that surrounding forest? Well, if you're looking from the base up at the mountain and you look to to the right, or if you're skiing, it'd be skiers left. That line of, that's, uh, we don't own that property. We own a bit of it on the base. It's owned by one individual and also by the National Park Service. Okay. Uh, unlike National Forest Service, the National Park Service is a do not touch. Right. So expanding uh, down the ridge would be really next to impossible. Going uh, north and northeast, uh, we are about maxed out, although we are starting a new master plan, and uh, that is starting tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And we will probably show a new trail coming down off of the Country Club Trail. Hmm. Uh, whether, you know, again, this is a master plan far from a... Uh, a permitted use. Uh, we don't have a lot of additional skiing terrain, but what we have done is change our terrain. Uh, we have a really nice terrain park, uh, which is two trails, Country Club and Delaware, which will it makes it almost 5,000 feet of terrain park. Uh, and it's a, a very accessible trail. For equipment because it's down by the shop so we could get in and build a park and get off and it has a lot of a lot of benefits for us we've uh, 
obviously added tubing over on the other side of the mountain, which is also a very successful part of our business. Uh, our biggest business is still 50% of our skiers rent equipment and take lessons. Oh, wow. So a lot of our property that is available is very steep. You had mentioned Renegade in one of your comments. You know, we don't need expert terrain. Uh, it's nice to have some, but what we have seen is groom the best that we possibly can. And we're very proud of that. Our, I, I saw in your questions that our skiing was marginal. I think, I'm not sure what that meant, whether it meant marginal because of weather. It's, it's or, more, I'm talking about marginal weather. So, so what I mean by that is you get a lot of freeze thaws. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you have a lot of days yeah. above freezing. No, I, your, your snow was like the job that you did was great. Uh, it's, it's more talking about the climate. Right. Yeah. The, the marginal issue is there, but we compensate for it by spending. We've spent well over a million and a half dollars in the last three years in snowmaking. It's, you know, all but maybe 10% of the mountain, less than 10%. Is totally automated. By automated, those guns, you know, they typically they run by themselves. But more importantly, they will adjust to temperature, ambient temperature changes every ten seconds, and it's, wow. it's pretty amazing how that computer runs. So that gun, if you set it to wake a snow quality of X, that gun will constantly run through and run through and and adjust for that snow quality and that helps our grooming and uh, it's really that's how you when we looked at our average snowmaking temperature over if we run a thousand hours and just average it in total it runs about 28 degrees uh, constantly now, with this system at 28 degrees, you're making 20 gallons. You're converting 20 gallons a minute of water. But that same system on those nights that it's, you know, 15 and 10 degrees, they can adjust instantly to 70 gallons a minute of water. Your whole system is set up that way now? Yes. And it's all, it's done. There's a main computer room. But now this year we totally upgraded that that the top three snowmakers between two shifts run the entire system off of their cell phones. Oh, wow. So it's, 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 it's con you know, it's a work in progress and we're still at it. So, so what, how does that compare to the snowmaking system you had when Shawnee opened in 1975? Well, it, it's a basic air water system, but in 1975, we could run. Now our whole system has changed and but the guns were the best they're available at the time from large engineering, but they were hogs. They were totally inefficient. They would require three to 400 CFM of air wow. in order you know, to make a quality snow. And that's when you would always see years ago, man-made snow was really man-made ice that wow. you would try to grind up to the best of your ability to make a skiing surface that would wear out after two or three hours of skiers unless you had some natural snow. So it's uh, now they're uh, in museums. 
most of those guns. How has the the amount of natural snow you've gotten changed over those past nearly five decades? Well, you know, it's it's hit and miss. I mean, you can't put your finger on it. Uh, we average typically 50 to 55 inches of snow. But last year was a, an excellent snow year. Uh, I hadn't seen one like that uh, back to 90. 98, 96, 97, 98, where we got in that pattern of uh, a good jet stream with moisture coming up and and dumping a lot of snow. Uh, But we've had, you know, the jet stream other years, the jet stream dropping down below us, and it'd be just below us, not by much, uh, where New England was getting a lot of snow but the mid-Atlantic states, uh, we were not. Uh, So that's where, you know, we spend our money to make sure we have, and this is all the Pocono areas, you know, and, you know, I always talk about Blue Mountain, Camelback, and us, because we we, uh, share the same customers, so to speak. But we've proven our reliability over and over again in the business we open typically unless it's by choice but we can open after thanksgiving most of the time at least for the first couple weekends uh, and then stay open and ski 110 to 120 days that was unheard of years ago i mean and now people believe in the poconos you know that you could see it in the phone calls rachel sees it in our social media and people talk about snowmaking and, you know, what are you doing and this and that? And how far do you think you'll get today? And so they're, they're believers now. And you see it in all of our numbers, the growth. You had talked about the growth of skiing. And I think it's because, look, you could come from where you are in Brooklyn, be here in 90 minutes and know you're going to have snow. Yep. And, uh, it's another alternative to driving three hours or driving for five and six hours and having to stay somewhere. Yep. So driving 90 minutes or less, uh, you can get to, you know, three good ski areas and uh, you'd be confident that we're going to have a product. And we all take a lot of pride and there's definitely a competition between all of us in our grooming and, yeah, I'm a little selfish. I think we uh, we hold our own, or if not, we're the better of the bunch. Uh, but that's my opinion. It should be. <laughs> we spend a lot of money. We have the newest grooming fleet in the Poconos. You know, we don't have yep. a machine. The oldest machine has a thousand hours on it. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, another new one this year, and you know the machines change. They're more efficient. I mean, I think that's the key thing. And everything we do from food service to our, you know, a rental shop with 4,000 sets of equipment uh, to be efficient, Uh, our new ticketing um, and our way of selling our business has gotten, you know, because, you you know, there's obviously a, a, a never seen before employment issue in the whole country. And uh, so we, we can do what we do 
with less people by becoming more efficient and not overworking, not burning out the people that are working here. They're enjoying the efficiency uh, from, you know, we just now are completing, redoing both our cafeterias and our restaurant. And again, taking advantage of everything new, everything that we've learned, uh, gone to the airports. You know, a lot of it is sending people out and look and see the airports, which have all have re I mean, if you've been to Newark at all lately in Terminal C, because that's the one we always seem to be at and right. look at how they did their food service. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely incredible. You know, it's, uh, and got, we can't do that. But there's little pieces of that that we look at and we adapt to it. Uh, a lot of grab and go. We found out last year people just really want to ski. They're not so interested in waiting in line to have a hamburger or whatever. Let's get us something we can have. We'll sit outside, sit on the deck, sit inside, whatever. But you know, we their turnaround time instead of being a half an hour inside or so you know, it was eight to 12 minutes and everybody's happy. We're happy. They're happy. And it's a uh, efficiency. It's really, I think the key word today, you know, how can you do what you've always done better uh, with less employees? Cause that's the way it is. And how can you do it with a much lower carbon footprint, which is important. We reduced ours almost by 60% oh, wow. and can produce more snow. So that's, that's a key for us. And, you know, everyone we talk to, I talk to everyone that works with me, uh, that's our, not a motto, but mantra. It's just, Hey, here's a good way of looking, looking at this. We all want the better things for all of us here, but here's how we, we're going to have to do it. Uh, so we continue to support change and you know i'm gonna be 69 and started out with a shovel when i was a kid mm. so i have rachel in my office working near me and it's a great education for me and we're open although you might get some kickback from rachel but we are open to new ideas constantly <laughs> not not be afraid to change not to be afraid. Sometimes it's hard for me, but not to take that in the ski industry. There's a lot. Of, well, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah. And we've tried everything else. Well, there's no such thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's everything else? <laughs> everything else changes every week or month. So it's right. fun. And it's keeping me, keeping me young. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like you have a very strong commitment to continue to improve the ski area. Uh, I would love to get any details you can give us on that master plan. This podcast won't go out until after tomorrow. And I can certainly hold until you have the details of that public, but uh, what can you tell us about that master plan and, and how you envision Shawnee evolving into the future? Well, uh, you know, it's hard, hard to totally pinpoint. It's, I don't want, it's not hypothetical. But one thing that we are looking at since we, when you come across the bridge, you'll see an area that used to have a summer play park. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and part of the master plan there shows a new base facility with a a 120 rooms as a hotel uh, a little bit of retail not a lot some a better daycare facility right okay. now of course with covid that all went crazy right but this one had a right now we had a very small room and it just was not you know it was not a good thing but this new building will have that a real i shouldn't say a real but a, a much bigger ski shop and uh so that that's one piece of it uh there's also a piece of it that's going to have employee housing mm, uh, we oh, wow. own seven homes and four condos now and that's a, a big thing in attracting new employees whether yeah. they're foreign workers that are here on j1s for the winter or people what i envision is i think we could attract young couples just starting out get them a place that they could afford in a ski town or a anywhere a place that's nice and they can afford easily and will help us get quality people and it, it'd be startup but i think it's a that's that's in our our master plan there's also an area again on the top half of the mountain that had some hiking trails had some type of lodging in between around and through and that's all basically in a design stage at this point you know tomorrow's stuff is just going to be we've done all the all the aerial surveying is done and mapping now we're going to just come up with a couple of layouts hopefully present it to the township probably in the first of the year showing uh, we don't have to show uses for a master plan just here's what we would like to do it's a concept and i think we'll have a little bit of everything uh probably even some camping uh oh, well. on that old parking lot at the summit and yeah. down over the delaware side uh that would do because we connect directly to the national park and there's miles of biking and hiking right out the backside of the lodge so that's a strong possibility uh, but that stuff changes we're looking at uh, i mean if everything is evolving so quickly it's it's hard to really to capture what is what is exactly what you need going forward but we're going to touch bases on five or six different things and some of it will probably include uh, some type of townhome, condos, some ski in, ski out stuff, because there's a, uh, according to our surveys and people here, there is a, you know, a call here for families, young families that like our children's program that would like, like to stay here because of the summer experience in the Delaware River. So they have the Delaware River in the summer, the ski area in the winter. We have three golf courses that are beautiful golf courses in less than two miles from the ski area. 
one is less than a mile, which is a Jack Nicholas course. And of course, the Shawnee course uh, down at the hotel is a, a beautiful course on an island in the Delaware River. So all those things we're going to try to capitalize on. Uh, Rachel's starting a lot of partnerships with these companies, just talk and how we can best suit each other going forward. None of them have, the Inn has housing, show me in, but, you know, we can attack, take our list of people and merge them together with golf and other activities, canoeing, um, is big. Everything right now outdoors is bigger than ever. It's it's absolutely incredible. So that's that's basically our plan is to have a uh, a buffet I, to say of housing, lodging, recreation here at the mountain. And we still look not real hard uh, at different summer operations. Uh, something else we can do. Uh, besides festivals, which are are successful, and we just completed one, and they're really nice. But uh, our problem at the ski area is, as you know, a very limited base area. Right. Uh, you come off the hill, and you're at the you're at the lodge. Mm-hmm. So that that curbs us from doing a lot of stuff. But right. not to say we can't uh, exploit the national park system and. I think we will do well with that because people want to be outside uh, for obvious reasons. And I think they want to recreate outside. They want to not just go for a hike, although the Appalachian Trail's right here. And so what, I think they they want that experience of, of canoeing or kayaking or just going down a river, uh, guided or unguided. So that's where where we see this master plan unfolding. Uh, Key elements are obviously employee housing. A hotel is a separate issue, but we are having some conversations uh, with different branding for that. And then looking on the mountain itself, Nick, you mentioned One New Trail Country Club. So will that link up with the lower Delaware train park? Will that come down to yes. lift B by itself? No, it'll link up because it falls off the other way. Right on that last corner of Delaware, mm-hmm. it would have to come in kind of seamlessly there. And because uh, to the right of that, the skier's right, elevation drops uh, about 35 feet off to the yeah. side. And we're very happy a ski area that has mostly, if not totally, fall line trails grooms 100% better and skis 100% better. And for our skiers, again, with the uh, the amount of people we teach and rent equipment to, it's huge. 50% is a, it's amazing. And last year was 55%. is a massive number of rentals. It's yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's pretty incredible. When might that new trail come online, Nick? I think we could probably see that next year. Uh, the permitting for it is not an issue. There's no land acquisition necessary. Snowmaking's nearby. Uh, utilities that we would need for it are all nearby. It's just a matter of what we want to do with it. Do we want to 
make that the terrain park. And then because we get some people that like Delaware, because it's a very nice fall line meandering trail down through the woods. You know, it's not wide open uh, like a slope. So we may convert that part of the terrain park in there with some maybe more exciting features, put it that way. You know, big features without a lot of bite are very exciting for our crowd. They like to see this big feature, and yeah. I like to see it. And I don't like to use the word safe in the ski industry, but it's more more show than bite. Right. <laughs> it, you know, looking at that section of the mountain where you have the terrain park, a long time ago, you had a little chairlift up Country Club. Would you ever consider putting a lift back there so folks could just lap the park and not have to go all the way back down to the bottom? Well, it's only that short park. That lift was only 1,200 feet. We looked at putting in a self-service carpet there. and But there's only, we use it, and we may, because we call that our incubator park. For that. And, uh, you know, where we do any teaching we do, we do there on some small rails and some small rollers. So if that business evolves that we can do more lessons and then then you can make the argument, you know, it's probably gonna be worthwhile. Let's just put a carpet in there. So that that is a possibility, although not necessarily a plan. Uh, but it's a possibility. Again, it depends what we do on that, you know, that skier's right side all through there. If we wind up doing it with some type of uh, trailside uh, village is what we we're looking at. So if somebody rides up the other lift and, and needs to play on there and they just need a way to get up to get over their units, that lift could have some play there also. There's, there's going to be a lot of planning involved. Uh, uh, I have the th- the the layout in my head i i know what i like to i would like to see as i just told you what i think uh, but we will hire a farm that we worked with before to uh to really put it together take my input and our our architects input and let them uh, let them come up with a couple plans and I, I think that's money well spent and give us all a better direction for something that would probably take, you know, five years to complete at least. Right. Uh, depending on how successful it is. But, you know, I, I believe it'll be successful. The fact that, you know, I don't know who likes skiing and comes out of that larger income in New York and uh, North Jersey that wouldn't want a place right here with, you know, great golf, uh, you know, good skiing. You know, it's a, I think it'll be a positive thing for the ski area. And a lot of our, a lot of our skiers, they, you know, you got to listen to your skiers. And and that's one thing that we don't offer. Right. Yeah. That big water park at Camelback is really uh, resonated with folks who just want a little weekend getaway. Yep. Yeah. To have that on the mountain. So, you know, I I happened to hit Shawnee 
last year, right after that huge snowstorm, you were just in the bullseye of it. And you got 36 inches of snow. Um, and I was skiing around through the trees that day, through the glades, and they're just really well spaced. Is that a coincidence or do you actually manage the trees on the mountain? No, we do not. And would you ever consider glading or, or naming glades or do you just not get enough natural snow for that to, for that Most to be worth Most of the time investment? we don't get a, a lot of natural snow. And again, with 50% of our skiers coming out of that rental shop with no limitation on where that 50% can go on the mountain, glade skiing, although it's a lot of fun. And they were skiing through that here from the ski area all the way over to the power line. There's yeah. some very steep drops. There's some cliffs in there right. on both sides of the mountain. We did leave. We did groove in the top arrowhead and the bottom half of Bushkill. The rest we just let go. So until the snow melted, we didn't groom it because, you know, the top of the mountain did get about 30 inches. The bottom got about 27. But when you put a snowcat on it, that's not designed for for that depth of snow out west you will see big compactor bars on the back of a cat instead of tillers and uh you know for you know who knows we don't have that type of equipment so when you groom it with a tiller and the weight of the tiller you compress that 30 inches or 25 inches or 36 inches you compress that by two thirds and then when the sun comes out, because it does, and, yeah. uh, it doesn't last very long. So we just let it go the way it was. And the only trail that we didn't let them ski was Renegade because there were some issues on the trail with the deep snow, couldn't get at it. So we, we left that closed. Although, you know, kids are kids and they poached everything they could. Uh, there, was, <laughs> there was ski tracks down the road coming out down near the lake by the firehouse and the danger that I mean, it's fun kids love it. It's great. But if we don't know they're in there, uh, so that's why we don't really promote it. Plus they're on private property. They're in the national park. It's, they're, they're everywhere, but it was a fun time and yeah. it lasted about, well, I'd say it lasted a week, not much more than that before it melted out. Right. Right. Yeah, there was a closed sign at the top of Lower Arrowhead, but there wasn't a rope. It, it seemed right. to be more saying, like, if you can't handle this, stay out. Pretty much. It, it's a funny, it's a, you know, we put up the signs, but did we necessarily enforce it? It was impossible. Uh, there was people everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so we really did not. And, and they would do it once and figure out that really wasn't that much fun. It's more fun over on the other side. It's more fun on the top half of the mountain because, as you said, you know, the mountain is, is laid out most very different than most mountains, that the only steep area is on the bottom half of the mountain. So they, they like playing, playing around in and out of the woods, around the back of hydrants, everywhere that is unique they were at, but not too many on the bottom half. They would just find that they couldn't handle that much snow, and it got very heavy very quickly. Yeah, and that's that, true. You know, as you know, can be a chore. 
Yeah. No, I, I did have a lot of fun with it though. There was there was oh, some yeah. untracked stuff. Um, oh yeah. Because as you Steve said, control I had a ball. Everyone yeah. that you know, my my grandchildren had a ball. All their friends had a ball. I'm sure Rachel had some off pissy uh, rides. So, so let's just so. talk about that layout for a minute here, Nick. It, it's it's actually it's it's a special mountain in some ways. Because most green terrain in the Northeast, it, it, it's it's one of two things. It's either a very small area down toward the bottom, like you have on Little Chief, or it's a long catwalk that, that sort of winds back and down, down the mountain. Now, you actually have at Shawnee on Upper Pennsylvania, and, and really look out in Upper Tomahawk are much steeper. You have just these long, legitimate trails mm-hmm. that aren't catwalks, that, that are nice and wide that beginners can really feel comfortable on. Just talk about the layout of the mountain here and, and how good that is of an experience for someone who's really trying to get the confidence to ski top to bottom on a place like Shawnee. Exactly. Uh, when we laid out the mountain, uh, we understood you can't change what nature gave us. Mm-hmm. This is the mountain we have uh, and you, you can't really change it. So the trails were cut wider than many at the time they are all fall line there's nothing that you know you're you know that you're off the side or off the edge or pushed one way or the other um and again you know i keep going back to the amount of beginners novices that we have here uh they like you said they get to experience 90 percent of the mountain and like you said they build their confidence on pennsylvania on a trail like Kittatinny, uh, Benekill, uh, all of the tops of every trail, Tomahawk, top of Arrowhead. And that's that's how they step up. You know, they may ski Blue Mountain to Pennsylvania just to get away from that little quick drop on the top of PA. So Blue Mountain's much flatter, and it's just a straight shot. There's no turn at the bottom all the way down. And you're skiing a trail that's you know five thousand feet long at that point. So there, there's it's good terrain for our customer, and the the better skiers and riders, uh, they have lots of room. You know the bottom of Tecumseh Thundercloud. You know they're good fall line trails that offer some some degree of uh, slope. Delaware also, uh, of course, now it's a terrain park, but still a lot of people ski in and out of it. And uh, we just took the land we had and try to design the best trails that we possibly could and still maintain some type of ambiance of, you know, tree line trails that are, you know, it'd be nice to have some more evergreens and stuff in there. But it's an experience, and you know people do comment on it. Other people say you need some steeper terrain, uh, but I just can't make it. I can't create it, <laughs> and uh, so we do the best. You know, we can make it harder. You know, we can certainly make the snow wetter and groom it, so it's like a tabletop. But right. uh, that that would get old very quick about one run. So we try to offer everyone a good experience that you know that we can you know you know that's a lot of people say well that's like a canned statement but it's the truth i mean we make snow that way 
and uh, we groom that way. And uh, for the most part, it's it's received, you know, really, you know, really good. But you know, we have a a long time skier skied here for uh, best I could tell, 25 years, and uh, he's skilled. You know, and I tell you, he still is on 205s, and mm-hmm. you know, he wants a, a a bump trail. Right. And I get four letters a year, or he stops me, or comes up to my office with a layout and tells me how good it would be. And we do that every now and then, and we did it after that snowfall on right. Lower Tecumseh, and for a day or two, everybody loves it. But then when it gets to the real McCoy, after a couple freezes and thaws and whatever, it's nobody's there. And the ones that are there aren't having much fun. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting trail layout. Also, the, the way it spreads people out, it never feels really super crowded, except some of the areas funneling back toward the bottom. Right. Um, let's talk about the lift system a little bit here. Just pull back and, and give me your wish list of, of what you'd like to improve or replace long term in your lift system. Uh, right now, and again, this is is get is a proposal that's going to be put we're going to take out the double double okay uh and it's it's time it's 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 natural it's life expectancy it's still a great lift uh, or lifts but move that out and put in a quad there it'll be a fixed grip it won't be a detachable but a new quad there that's our first thing we put in a new carpet over on the tubing area, uh, beginner slope, those two carpets plus the lift seem to handle our beginners crowd. We looked at another option and again, this will go in the master plan and will require either a right away or some type of uh, land purchase is to get, take out F lift and service the top of Bushkill via uh, D&E if they're there or just D if it's there and the detachable to get to the top of Bushkill quickly. Oh, wow. uh, so that that is something we'd like to do. Okay, so, so put a second detachable in? No, no. We looked at taking our existing and turning it. Okay. Uh, has been playing with the idea that they could still get off uh, at the summit in normal, and then the lift would turn and then terminate on the top. But it's it's a challenge, and they're having uh, they're having a challenge with it, and the, the cost is probably going to say no. It doesn't okay. make sense. But again, we could put in. A fixed grip going straight. It's short lift. It's only about 800 feet to get to the top of Bushkill and change that a little bit on the top. That's that's a possibility. Again, it depends on how this master plan is going to fall out. But I could see that. I don't know what else the future holds in the way of transportation. Uh, self-loading is something that they're still having some trouble with. A lot of areas have it, but it's it's far from 
perfect if there is yeah. such a word so so are you saying you would take the the current tomahawk and you'd ski down and there'd be a little lift up benekill no you wouldn't ski down you could get you'd get off that lift there you could put a carpet we did look at that to go up to the top but that doesn't seem seem like it makes a lot of sense so you know f lift could probably just stay there it's a strong possibility but we're toying with it a lot of this stuff you know you just keep going over back and forth and and getting different ideas from different manufacturers of a way of handling quite honestly with our limited ticket sales now uh even other than the terrain there's the lift lines are pretty much passe i mean there's very you know the doppelmeyer gets a line because most people want to ride it right but the lines are you know on a busy day a six minute line is about it and that's not much so yeah yeah was there a, a, a busy sunday and only one half of the double double was running and, yeah. and lift f was was out was were there mechanical issues with lift f no employee uh, i mean we had no personnel i, I don't think there was many ski areas that were not experiencing that yeah. in fact i know there weren't i mean that was a big problem it yeah. was a huge problem for us right uh, it was certainly not our wish there yeah. was no money savings for us right. we just couldn't get personnel we right. were missing 50 people oh, right wow. off the bat our our foreign j1s that we bring in every year and it's hard to replace the poconos i mean you can go you can't go 100 yards around here without seeing a help help wanted sign yeah and you're competing with everything i mean yep. the state is you know they have flashing signs everywhere hiring 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 it's right. it's very competitive but you know this year hopefully it'll be better we yeah. have you know we have 40 some contracts uh from south america now the borders are open in those countries more so the embassies so um, the visas are should be available uh, we're told every day that they are going to be and uh, we're we're preparing for it and uh, the kids know they're they're all getting vaccinated the protocols are in place so hopefully nothing changes and we whip this thing but uh, and a lot of people didn't want to work they were afraid some were afraid of working mm -hmm. some were happy with their unemployment and their uh, bonus checks so to speak so it was tough last year was in every department you know rental shop the kitchen but you know we made the best we could out of what what we were dealt with you know fortunately the snowmakers I mean, they were working 80 hour weeks and it wasn't making snow. I mean, you know, they, they were running lifts on wow. the weekends. It was, we did whatever we could to make it work. Well, you, and, you got through it and, and you have yeah. another, another season ahead of you here. Um, I, I want to wrap up here, Nick, by uh, talking about passes. I, I really yeah. like Shawnee's season pass. It's very affordable. Started yeah. at four hundred dollars this season. I think it'll top out around five hundred. 
Uh, yep. Just talk about why you keep your season pass so accessible and affordable because that, you know, I want to underscore this here. Shawnee has night skiing, which means you have double the opportunity to enjoy the mountain. So you're open a lot more than some mountains that are, that charge much more for their pass. Yeah. We're happy with that rate. I mean, it wasn't too long ago. It was $300. Yeah. And, uh, so we are moving upwards, but we don't see us having that again, our crowd, you know, you have the crowd that would pay $800 for a pass or $700, but then all those mountains around here that will, you know, and I'll use Camelback. We do a, they do a great job, but if you, it takes a page in a brochure to understand how that pass actually works right uh because it you know there's blackouts green outs you know it, it's good between these hours not these hours and we just found it really cumbersome and yeah. we're happy with what we're getting we're happy with the amount of passes we sell and uh again it's a good mix uh and there's a lot of local people that buy passes and that helps in a, a very different way. Uh, we're very community minded uh, and that's a good part of it there. Although we'd rather them work here and get the same benefit, <laughs> but uh, we're trying, we're trying everything we can do. We're happy with the pass. We think it's very affordable and I think our customers really appreciate it. And have you seen, growing sales around that pass since COVID like most ski areas have? Uh, yeah, definitely. We've had growing sales in everything. Uh, we've been exposed to so many more people. Uh, our, again, that's a more as much COVID as a marketing change, a total marketing change in one year. I mean, that's pretty much unheard of. Right. And a lot of confidence and uh, we've the information that we're trying to get. So we want our goal is to tell everyone who calls, writes, chats, is to say yes. And right. that's that's our goal. We don't want to have to say yeah, but it's only good here, or yes, you know, we can do that, but you have to buy the upgrade. And we don't need to do that. I mean, if we're happy with that and happy with our retail sales and we could sell them in advance, that's pretty damn good. I mean, that's something I would never believe we could see. And uh, again, it's a learning experience for me and I hope it continues. And um, you've been working hard to create more value for your pass holders over the past few years. One of the things that you did was join the Indie Pass for its inaugural season, which was 2019 to 20, and you've stuck with that coalition. Talk a little bit about why you joined the Indie Pass and how that relationship has gone so far. Well, it's improved. I mean, the relationship was always good, but they've grown. I'm not sure the total amount of When we first signed on with Indie Pass, there was only four or five areas. And they came and uh, talked to Jim Tust and myself. And Jim says, what do you think? I said, well, this is one of those things. We have nothing really to lose. Right. Let's see what happens. And they've done a good job, IndyPass. And 
now I'm not sure how many, do you know how many areas they're up to now? 85 or ah, so. I already knew that one. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So their growth is strong and we're also doing more ourselves where we're partnering with other mountains that are uh, independently owned across the country. And we're going to see how that works. And that's good for our pass holders. Now, you know, we have, you know, ski area in Colorado. We have Seven Springs. We have several ski areas that are just a little bit farther from here, but that's accessible for our pass holders. And uh, I think that'll be received well and for our employees. Uh, so, yeah, the, those, those reciprocal coalitions are very interesting. And yeah. Ski Cooper, your partner in Colorado, actually has about 50 partners across the country and right. they also have a very affordable pass. And there may be an opportunity for Shawnee to become the Ski Cooper of the East. <laughs> yeah. um, the uh, As far as the Indy Pass goes, Doug Fish, I've had him on the podcast a couple of times. And yeah. one interesting thing he told me about Pat's Peak is that something like 90% of the Indy Pass redemptions at Pat's Peak in New Hampshire were for folks who had never skied Pat's Peak before. Are you right. seeing similar statistics at Shawnee where people show up just to try Shawnee who may not have otherwise because they heard about it on the Indy Pass? Yes, without a doubt. Rachel's over here shaking her head. And <laughs> it's, it's definitely, uh, yeah, we definitely see that. Exposure, any kind of exposure. And, you know, then you're looking at, you know, the, the bigger they grow, the more people, you know, might say, oh, let's go give it a try. Uh, that's why we're kind of excited about some of these plans that, you know, that will not look like the normal. What we're, we want to do is not look like the normal ski area with a big hotel. And, you know, we're just not that type of place. So that's where this planning is going to come in. You know, whatever lodging we decide on is going to be unique. It's, you know, they're not million dollar investments. You know, they're going to just be unique and it'll offer everything. I mean, you go from a yurt and that Summit Lodge is a perfect layout for that. Where if we put 50 yurts below it mm -hmm. on, the, on the river side of this mountain, it's a very short walk to the lodge for breakfast and what, I mean, I think it, you know, all these little things combined could be one big, great thing. And, uh, that's where we're looking. And, you know, we may look for outside partners that are much better and at hospitality than we are. I mean, that was when Killington was so successful, uh, that was press Smith press, you know, never, never pounded a nail. Right. I mean, he owned the land and he had the ski area and took care of all the rentals and took care of all the maintenance and the maintenance fees, but never, never pounded a nail or hired a salesman. But got the right people in there to do it. Uh, one last question for you about Indy Pass. You are shifting for the first time to blackouts on that pass this year uh, for some holidays. Why did you decide to do that? We're just oversold. Yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, we are, you know, again, try to keep the best experience and where do you cut it back? There's one, one way of, you know, we're trying to, to maximize dollars. We are a business. 
on those on those days. Uh, and if you can do that in this business, you'll be okay. And a lot of our Indie Pass people are midweek. Uh, it's not a big holiday thing. You know, maybe they stay at their own mountains. Maybe they're educated enough that, you know, it's going to be a zoo. And, uh, you know, it's going to be very busy. But we want to control our crowd, make sure everybody can have the best experience possible. So that was just, you know, part of the conversation with Indie Pass. All right, Nick. Well, it sounds like you have a big season ahead and lots of big things and a lot of changes for Shawnee over the coming years. So I'll be sure to stop by this year and see what's new and get a few turns in. I would love to meet you all in person when I'm up there, but um, I thank you very much for your time and wish you the best of luck with all these exciting things you have coming up. Okay. Thank you very much. And we hope to see it. That's Nick Fredericks president, CEO, and part owner of Shawnee Mountain, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad to hear that place is thriving as an independent. If you are anywhere near that joint, take your kids there. It's on the Indy Pass. Go support that family and go support that operation. I really appreciate that, Nick. And I really appreciate all of you listening. Next week, if all goes well, I will have two podcasts for you. And they're big ones. Jackson Hole, Wyoming CEO Mary Kate Buckley will join me, followed by Smuggler's Notch owner Bill Stritzler. Then, coming up in a week or two, we've got Wachusett's owner Jeff Crowley. We've got Steamboat CEO Rob Perlman. We have got a really great local New England journalist named Sean Sutner. Those are not necessarily in that order, by the way, but I just booked a new one for December that I am very happy to announce here. I will be talking to the folks who run the terrific little Black Mountain of Maine ski area. The best way to get all of those the moment they drop is to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. You can also follow along with the Storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. And you can find the Storm on Facebook. Thank you all very much for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.